Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and to open up to the book of Titus, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you want to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, it's on page 998. 998. It's been a joy through to study through this book over the last month. And as Matt opened it up about four weeks ago, as he taught through those first few verses, those verses really laid the groundwork uh, for the entire book and for specifically what we're going to look at this morning. Titus 1, verse 1, talks about that the gospel produces a life of godliness. And Paul talks about his, his desire as an apostle and as a servant of Christ. He says that p- the people would be saved, that the, that the elect would come to faith. As they come to faith in Christ, that they would then, then gain a knowledge of Christ. But that knowledge doesn't simply stay there. The knowledge actually produces something. And he says for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It's more than just knowing about God, but knowing the gospel then changes you to live in a certain way. The gospel produces a life of godliness. We've been talking about a healthy church. A healthy church is one in which gospel transformation is evidenced in the lives of those within the church. Paul breaks it down for us when he starts going through the qualifications of elders there. And what he really is pointing to is saying the gospel should be evidenced in the lives of those who are your leaders. It should be evidenced in their family life. It should be evidenced in their character. And it should be evidenced in their teaching. And he says, if you want an alternative to this argument, look at the false teachers. There's a lack of gospel evidence in their life. Their teaching displays a lack of gospel knowledge. It's Jesus and Their character displays a lack of gospel knowledge, and their works display a lack of gospel knowledge. Paul says they're actually unfit for good works. Paul then leads into what Danny talked on last week, talking about the gospel transforming the lives of the members of the church. He talked about the older generation within the church, those who are 50 and over. And this morning we'll look at the younger generation of the church, those who are 50 and below, right about that, that that age grade. So read with me again. We'll start back in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you allow us to know who you are, that you've given us your your gospel, the truth. But Lord, you don't just allow us to know who you are. You give us the spirit who continually transforms our life for godliness. We thank you that you give us an opportunity to study together this passage as a church family. Lord, may it impact our lives. May the Holy Spirit use it as he sees fit. And may we leave here transformed into more Christ-likeness. In Christ's name I pray. Paul first addresses indirectly the younger women in the church. Now, it's tempting as we get to passages like this where we see a list of what we're supposed to look like. 
to feel that, okay, he's giving a list and I somehow need to conjure up the power to look like this. But that'd be futile and that would actually be very crushing to us. Because we'd be trying to measure up to something on our own power that we could never actually do. Which is why setting that groundwork, how the the gospel transforms us, allows when Paul comes in chapter 2 to say, this is what your life should look like, it sets the stage. Because it's not under our own power that we can do this. It's actually because the gospel has transformed us. And not only has the gospel transformed us, he's actually given us the, the spirit to live inside us and to indwell us, to help us, to challenge us. But then further than that, he allows us the encouragement of being in a body of believers. He indirectly addresses the young women through the older women, saying, you are to teach them, you are to train them. So he gives us the gospel that changes us, he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit, but then he gives us the believers in the church to help us to live the life that God has for us. So gospel transformation is evidenced in the lives of young women through two different areas as we look at in verses 4 and 5. First of all, it's a life that is dedicated to those in their home. These next two verses are some of the most ridiculed verses from the outside world. They say the church is out of touch with reality. These verses are outdated or they're old-fashioned. But we trust what God has planned from the very beginning, right? What we read in Genesis chapter 2, that God gave man leadership in the home and woman was made as his helper is the way God, his design has has been. This does not mean that man and women were created unequal. They are equals. They are both made in the image of God, which you see in Genesis chapter 1. And they serve God in their God-appointed positions equally for the glory of God. But one of the results of the fall is that that woman would desire man's God-given position of authority. You see that in Genesis 3, verse 16. What was natural submission in the relationship before the fall, now is a source of contention in the marriage relationship. But God's design for marriage didn't change with man's sin. It takes the gospel to restore this marriage relationship. This is a lengthy quote, but it helps us to see how the gospel is so intertwined with this. It says, Men and women are also uniquely designed to display the glory of God in the gospel through marriage. God creates marriage. And Paul tells us that when we embrace biblical headship and submission, we help to illustrate the gospel. Christ does not submit to the church, but he loves her as he lays down his life for her. And the church submits to Christ. Paul therefore commands husbands and wives to reflect this same ordering. And just as the roles of Christ and the church cannot be reversed, the roles of husband and wife cannot be reversed. They exist due to divine design. God has divinely designed the family in this way to demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. But this would have been so countercultural on the island of Crete. But a healthy church is full of people who are countercultural because of the gospel. When popular opinion in Crete would have told the women to be liberated from the bondage of being dedicated to those in your home, Paul says, let the gospel show through your life and your dedication to those who are inside your home. It's really interesting that Paul tells the older women to train the younger women to love their husband and children. You actually got to train them to do this. You think, well, wouldn't you just naturally love them? 
You know, when you get married, the wife is just saying, this man is just perfect, right? Nothing is wrong with him. Well, that quickly changes when the honeymoon period is over and the toilet seat is still up, right? <laughs> it's just like, what happened here? You know, May 16, 2009, I'm sure Laura was just delighted to marry me, at least I hope so. And we got married that day. The next morning, we had to wake up about 4 a.m. to catch our flight to the Dominican Republic. And I got ready in about 2.2 minutes because there's really not much you can do to this to make this look any better. And I'm ready, and I keep looking, what is taking you so long? Does this really take this long every single morning? And I'm going, let's go. We got to get our flight. We got to go. We got to go. JFK is like 15 minutes away. We got to be at least three hours early. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And she's saying, what have I done? I married a folks who is just crazy with time. And I'm like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And she's like, I have to learn to love this man. And Paul says to them, train them to love them. This love is a determined type of love that results not because of the husband being good to his wife, but because she is determined to love him because God has commanded that and she wants to obey God. She's also commanded to love her children. Again, we think, well, of course. Wouldn't that come naturally with a, with a mother's love? I mean, you just that's what we expect. Now, there's a lot of babies coming due in, in this church. And the thought could be, wow, you know, this will just be a piece of cake. This baby will, when I put him down for his nap, will look at me, just look at me just with adoring eyes and say, Mom, I'm going to take a nap now for about three hours. And you're going to do whatever you want to do. You're going to have peace and quiet. I'm going to lay my, my head down, Al. You can leave the room. It's going to be okay. And when you feed him apricots and mixed with, like, lettuce, they're going to be like, oh, give me more. Just give me more. I love this stuff. And I'll make sure I empty my diaper as soon as dad gets home so that, you can, so that he can do it. It's going to be perfect. But then that baby's born, and about two minutes later you realize, oh, what have we done? That baby doesn't sleep for more than 10 minutes. He won't even eat applesauce. He spits it out at you. And he makes sure to, to blow out his diaper every 38 minutes on a good day. And he does it right before dad gets home, so you have to clean it up. You think, I have to learn to love this child. And so Paul instructs the older women, train them. Train them to love them. This does not, not come naturally. It's interesting in Genesis 3, the two consequences of Eve's sin that are put on her correspond to her children, that there's pain in childbirth, and to her husband, that, that she would now desire his position of authority. But through the gospel's redemptive power, these two relationships are restored, and the young woman can actually now properly love her husband and her kids. How are we as moms and dads supposed to love our children? Dane Ortland says this, with our kids, if we are parents, what's our job? That question could be answered with a hundred valid responses, but at the center, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of a much greater love. To put a sharper edge on it, to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. As parents of children at Gospel Hope, may we push each other to show that love to our children. That is what they need. They need to see our love for them, but they need to be having us constantly remind them that there is a much greater love, and that comes from Jesus and to make his love irresistible, saying this is the one who we are to model our lives after. 
So love our children. The last way the young, young woman can be dedicated to those at her home is to be working at home. It's a few words later in, in this passage. God has ordained that the wife is to be the keeper of the home. She has an obligation to God to make sure that her home is well managed. The Proverbs 31 woman probably comes to your mind. The needs of her husband and her children are met because she works diligently. And this is not demeaning in any way. And as Christians, we should not apologize for this because the world sees it in a different way. This is what God has sovereignly designed. And Paul is simply stating what God has planned from the beginning. And as Christian young women live in this way, they prove to the world that what God's word says says is true. The young woman's responsibility at home must be her priority. Now, does this mean that a young woman can never have a job or have a career? Paul doesn't say that. If you look at actually Proverbs 31, the lady in that passage is actually very intricately involved in her community. She has a relationship with many outside of her home. The young woman can have a career and truly use the gifts that God has given to her to help her community to flourish. On September 13th, when we go back to our regular schedule, Nick and I will continue teaching our faith and work series. And one of the neat things about that is to see that God has gifted each of us with an ability to work, not only to meet our own needs, but also to help our society flourish. And that's not simply for men. Women have that ability as well. And so as women work, they have an ability to use their God-given gifts to help their society. But their responsibility at home must be their priority. And Paul states that here very clearly. Does that mean, as well, does the, the wife and mom must do all the household chores? Now your moms are saying, no, right? Paul's not saying that either. Kathy Keller, their husband Tim Keller, wrote the book, The Meaning of Marriage, and she says there, the basic roles of leader and helper are binding. That's the way God has planned this. But every couple must work out how that will be expressed within their marriage. Andreas and Margaret Kostenberger say this, Scripture doesn't give a whole lot of detail as to how God's design for man and woman is to be worked out. So a traditional division of labor, women in the kitchen changing diapers, men at work letting women do all the household chores, doesn't square with the biblical design. And actually, husbands, this is where we can step in. We can't just say, well, you're supposed to be at home, do everything. Serve your wife. Love your wife. Do things to help her out at home and train your children to do that. Our kids are to the age where we're trying to help them to learn to do chores at home. And it's good for them. It's good for me. Because I see, I'm like, that's just not as good as I would do it. But I realize it's good for them to learn that so they can help their mom. And it's been a joy to see as we've been in many of your homes so you dads have stepped up to do that. So when Paul says they are to be, simply to be working at home, doesn't mean that they're supposed to do everything. But the wife is to manage the home. It should be her priority. You know, we moved last Saturday, and we spent all week long getting our home together, and it's her priority. I try to listen to her where she wants things to go, probably overstep my bounds some. She's smiling, because that's probably true. (laughs) It's very true. Um, But this is her priority, and she does a great job of that. But it demonstrates the gospel's change in making this the priority of the woman's home. You know, women can struggle with their identity 
when it comes to simply being a stay-at-home mom. They may believe that they are not adequately serving society by just being at home day in and day out. They may believe that they don't have purpose. Or you actually go to the other side where they may actually place too much of their identity on their children. I've been wanting to do this all my life, and this is what God made me for, and this is all I'm going to do. My children are my identity. We can go to one side or the other. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that what Paul writes in just a few verses, starting in verse 11, that our identity is not rooted in being a stay-at-home mom or having a job outside the home. Our identity is rooted in Jesus, is rooted in the gospel. And so he reminds them, if you're a stay-at-home mom, your identity is not simply this. If if your identity is rooted in your job, it is not this. Your identity is rooted in Jesus and in his saving grace in your life. So the first area there in which the young woman demonstrates gospel transformation is through her dedication to those who are in her home. The second area is through a humbly godly character. Context, again, reminds us that the women here in Crete did not have very high moral or social character. Paul reminds them, through your relationship with Jesus, you can demonstrate a character that reveals that the Spirit is alive and he's working inside of you. So what does it look like? Paul starts by telling them to be self-controlled and to be pure. To be self-controlled has already come up twice in this book. First, when he's talking about the qualifications of elders, and then he is speaking then to the older men, what we looked at last week. It's very likely points to the fact that the people on the island of Crete did not demonstrate much self-control. And Paul reminds them, through your relationship with Jesus, you can demonstrate a character that reveals the Spirit's work within you. And now he extends this manner of self-control to the young women. They are to live a life of self-control in their marriage. As the, the ladies in the island of Crete did not display that in their marriage, he's saying, you have been transformed by the gospel. Jesus has now changed you through his grace. Live a life that is self-controlled with your husband. With your children, display self-control. Inside of your church, in your neighborhood, in your moral life, which he talks about impurity in in, in the next, next word, in your job, if you have a job outside the home, in your work at home, display self-control, to be sensible. It says they are to be pure. They are to live a morally upright life. Again, context is very important because the women in Crete were, were known for their immorality. Fidelity to their husbands was not the norm. But as a child of God, as someone who's been transformed by the gospel, they know who God is, and their life accords with godliness, they are to demonstrate faithfulness to their husbands by being pure. And Paul goes on to say that they should be kind, or simply put, to be like Jesus. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4.32 to be kind to one another. You know, that can seem to be so easy, but you turn on the news, and it does, do we see that often? It's not easy to do without the Spirit producing that change inside of us. I think he puts this here to remind them, when you're at home with your children, be kind. Be kind to your children. This doesn't just extend to the moms. It extends to the dads as well. When that milk spills, 
when your other child tries to clean that up because they think it's actually going to help you. It actually creates a more disastrous mess. When your child eats the middle of the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches from the middle constantly and has peanut butter all through here, that's a problem in our house. Be kind. Be kind. But so easily we can get distracted and we're just like, oh, children. He's saying no in your relationship with your children, in your relationship with your husband, in your relationship with those who are your neighbors, with those in the church. Be kind. Let the Spirit of Christ dictate this. Be kind. This is a great way when you're talking with those who are older in the church. Ask them, how do you display self-control with your children? How did you do that? How were you kind? That's where the great mentoring relationship can come in. That's why God has established it in this way. And Paul finishes by saying to be submissive to their husbands. This is the yielding of the, light, the wife's will to the God-given leadership of her husband. Again, this does not mean that the wife is inferior to her husband, not in any way. God has made both of them, again, in his image. And he has given them divinely established responsibilities in the marriage. But as Christ, being fully God, submitted himself to the will of the Father, so the wife, being fully equal with her husband, must submit herself to his God-given leadership. And Satan has attempted to destroy this from the very beginning, going to Eve and, and breaking the order of which God had established, disrupting that order. And the results, as we've seen, have been catastrophic. But the gospel redeems marriages. And there can be submission because the gospel transforms lives. And as the wife demonstrates this biblical submission, and as the husband demonstrates gentle leadership, the watching world can see God's perfect design put into action. The character of and the dedication to those in her home allow the young woman to display a purpose that is God-exalting. And they would come to the first purpose statement here, what he says there in verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Why does the young woman live her life this way? So that God's word is not reviled. Gospel-transformed lives have a direct effect of people's opinions of God's word. If a young lady says that she has been transformed by the gospel, she is a Christian, she's a believer in Jesus, yet never submits to her husband, is always lashing out in anger at her children, is unsubmissive, not only is her reputation damaged, but so is the word of God. But the young woman, though she is transformed by the gospel, she lives her life in accordance with the gospel. What she knows about God to be true is now played out through her life. And the Spirit of God works in her life. The other people in the, in the church body help her to see God's plan for her life. And as she does that, the watching world sees that what God's word says is absolutely true. Doing so will present a life that is God-exalted. What she says she believes will be produced in her actions, and her actions will point others to Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 6 then to address the younger men in the church. Gospel transformation is evidence in the lives of the young men through one area, and that is self-control. It's really interesting that for the older men, the older women, the younger women, they get a list the younger men get one thing. 
And you, you, women especially may say, that is not fair. But Paul is saying, if they can do this one thing, they're going to be in good shape. He says they, are need, they need to be self-controlled. Laura always jokes about that that frontal lobe on young men doesn't develop nearly as fast as it does for younger women. And it's true. You probably have seen those YouTube videos of how are men still alive. It's true. They do the dumbest things. We have a six-year-old boy at home. And I feel like I am constantly going like this about 10 times a week. Were you displaying self-control? And he's going, "Uh uh-uh. Because he's always running to his sisters, screaming in their face, hitting me and Laura for no reason, just because he has energy. And he always wants to wrestle. He's always doing stuff because he's just active. And I see, this is why Paul says it. You can do one thing, have self-control. And as we see God's work in Logan's life, we don't just simply say have self-control. It's who can help you with this? And he always says, Jesus can. And it's true. Jesus is the one who can help him with this. But I even look back to my own life and just the stupid stuff I did. Like, how am I alive today? I grew up in South America and we had a four-story home that had a patio. That's all we had for our backyard. And we had a water tower on the fourth floor. And the ledge was about this far, this big, that would then drop down four feet. Well, my brother and I, being complete idiots, decided we're just going to scoot across that ledge and see how far we can get out. So we were in the middle of the ledge looking down, and my mom comes out. And she looks up four stories at us, and thankfully she was very calm. And all she said was, get back. And we scooted all the way back and got back down. I've always wondered, if we both fell, who she would try to catch. I've always <laughs> wanted to ask her that. She, she, she would never answer that. But I think about how stupid, right? Back into my, into my high school years, most of you know me as a pretty tranquil guy. But when it came to sports, though, my lack of self-control was very evident. My coaches would talk about this with me. My, my senior year, my first basketball game, we lost by a little bit, which we typically lost, but this was closer, so I was upset. And in the high five line, going through the line, I actually hit their coach. I made it look like it was an accident. It wasn't an accident. Knocked him back. He came back at me and grabbed me by my jersey. And someone else saw that, and a whole big fiasco came out. The next day at practice, my coach came to me and said, look, I can see evidence of the gospel throughout your life. But when it comes to sports you have a severe lack of self-control. And it was good for me. Because he not only addressed my character, but he also put it in relation to the gospel. As someone who claims to be a Christian, my lack of self-control did not display what God had done in my life. And I'm very thankful for that, for him pointing that out for me. But as young men, we see a severe lack of self-control And Paul says, for those of you who are here on the island of Crete and to those of us who read it now, young men, urge them consistently, constantly to be self-controlled. This points to so many different areas of life. Think about in the marriage relationship. If the wife is to submit to the husband, this is an area in which we as husbands can use incredible self-control. Not to think, well, I have God-given leadership and authority. I can do whatever I want to do. But Paul says, no, use self-control. Be sensible. 
Be loving to your wife. Lead her gently as Christ leads, leads you. In our work with our, with our coworkers, with our clients, with our bosses, demonstrate a life that is full of self-control. In our church, in our relationship as a church family, demonstrate self-control. With our kids, you know, I can stand here and say that, but there are times in my life where this is challenging, especially right before bed, when I just want peace and quiet, them to all be in their rooms, laying down, and it's like, go to bed, <laughs> please. But lack of self-control can, can, can present itself in that way. In our neighboring relationships, in our potential of changing jobs, we can think, well, this advances me. And if your wife's saying, please don't do that, demonstrate self-control. There may be a reason for that. In our thoughts and our actions regarding physical intimacy, demonstrate self-control. In the reaction to conflict, self-control. So Paul says one thing to younger, younger men, but it's packed full of so many areas of our life that it, that it, that it goes to. Paul then talks to t- Titus specifically. We see now here the leaders in the church. Maybe he'll put this together with the younger men because Titus would have fallen into this category. But he says to Titus, you are to set an example for the young men. Since he was young himself, the other young men would have looked to him to see what his life looked like. But he was also an example for the rest of those who were in the churches there on the island of Crete. But what was he to to demonstrate by example? First of all, Paul says, a life of good works. We see that in verse 7. This is a theme here in the book of Titus. We see it first talked about when Paul is talking about the false teachers, that they are actually unfit for good works. And now he talks to Titus saying, you are, as, a, as the leader of the church there, to be a model of good works. Others are watching you. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he says that we are to be zealous for good works, flowing out of a relationship with Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, we are to all be ready for good works. In verse 8, it says, devote yourself to good works. They don't come because you want salvation, but they flow as a result of your salvation. And then he finishes in verse 14. If I haven't said it enough, let me remind you again, you devote yourself to good works. Remind them to do this. And Titus is to accept the example in doing this, which is a result of gospel transformation in his own life. Now, we often fear about talking about good works because of other religions that emphasize works for the purpose of gaining salvation. But we see this all sprinkled out throughout Paul's letters. Works are a direct result of salvation. The order in which it happens is incredibly important. We read earlier Ephesians 2. I didn't know that was coming up on the screen, and we were reading that this morning, but it's perfect. Those verses are incredibly portrayed in a way which shows the correct order of the way God wants good works to happen. Paul says they don't happen before salvation. You don't gain your salvation as, as, a, as a matter of your works because you would boast about it. Everyone would know what you've done. But you are saved through grace, through faith. But then Paul quickly says after that, but you were created for good works. You were created for this. What James says in James chapter 2, faith without works is dead, is absolutely true. If you say you have faith, but there's nothing to back that up, do you have true saving faith? And James' argument is no, you don't. So when Paul comes here and he says, 
to de- devote yourself to good works, to be an example of good works. He's saying because the gospel has changed you, you can then demonstrate works as a leader in the church and as one who pointed elders in the other church and as a male in the church. Titus should set the example by displaying gospel transformed life of modeling good works. He says, don't simply teach. Display your teaching through your works. Correct teaching produces correct living. Actions speak louder than words. Our words and teaching are incredibly important. It reminds Titus here how we as teachers live out our lives, have a direct connection to how well those who are under our teaching learn. As young husbands, and young fathers in this church? Are we simply teaching our children, or are we modeling that for them? He talks to Titus saying, look, you can't just simply teach, demonstrate your life through good works. But in all of this, we must remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our works don't, don't save us, Our works don't justify us after salvation. Our works don't gain us any further favor with God. But Jesus wants us to do good works so that the Father gets the glory of the gospel's transforming power in our lives. He says, so display this in your life, Titus. Display this. Second, he says, a teaching that is sound. He was to be an example in his teaching. These first 10 verses here in chapter Two are what Titus is supposed to teach, but this verse reminds him how he should teach. In chapter 1, the false teachers were accused of adding to the teaching of Jesus. But in contrast, he tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says, first of all, with integrity, or teaching that is not corrupt. Many of the false teachers back in those days were teaching for personal or financial gain. But Titus was to teach in a way that indicated there was nothing in his teaching for self-serving purposes. Teach with dignity, he says. There's a seriousness in his teaching. It didn't mean that Titus couldn't laugh, that he couldn't have a fun life, but he needed to be serious when the situation called for it, especially in his teaching. And then sound speech, correct doctrine. He tells Titus in the first chapter, you are to go around and appoint elders in all the different cities. But Titus himself must have a sound doctrine that he is teaching to the other elders. Because if they are going to confront error and teach true doctrine, he needs to be teaching them this true doctrine. So he says, show integrity, show dignity, show sound speech. Your teaching needs to display this. And it was a tall order. But again, he wasn't telling Titus, do this on your own power. He's saying, Titus, you can do this because the gospel has transformed you in the same spirit that indwells the others in the church is the same spirit that you have inside of you. So teach in such a way and live your life in such a way that they can see you as an example. And he has as well a purpose that is God-exalting. We see there in verse 8, the second purpose statement, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. There's question about who that opponent is, but regardless of who that opponent is, who's, who's talking about his hypocrisy, saying, look, live your life in such a way, teach in such a way, that there's nothing evil to say about us. That our teaching is sound, 
that our life displays that what we teach is the way we live. That those who oppose Christ and oppose us have nothing evil to say about us. It was a tall order, but it could come as a result of the grace of God flowing through Titus' life. And as a leader in the church, he needed to display that to the church. The gospel transforms each of these relationships for the young woman, for the young men, and for the leaders in the church. Those, that first verse that Paul writes to Titus is so integral to this saying, because you have faith and you have a knowledge of who Christ is, let it accord with godliness. So he doesn't simply give a list and say, try to do this on your own. He says, no, because the gospel has changed you, you have the ability to live in a way that shows Christ-likeness. So now what? First of all, rest in Jesus for his grace and salvation. Rest in him. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, rest in him. Rest in his grace. The gospel is so good. It is so beautiful because I realize we cannot do anything to inherit this. We are sinners, but Christ has come in our place. He died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again so that we could be saved. So rest in him. Rest in his grace for salvation. Second of all, rest in Jesus for his grace to live according to the gospel. You know, we are not left on our own to do this, to live the rest of our life after salvation. That somehow the gospel is something that just saves us for eternity and we got to figure the rest out. He actually gives us his grace to live our life according to the gospel. So rest in him. We can so often come in and feel so beat up after a week and look forward to it. We can say, how in the world am I going to get through this? But Jesus actually says, rest. You can actually rest in me. My grace is sufficient for you. Rest in Jesus for his grace when we don't live according to the gospel. You know, oftentimes we look at Jesus as someone who was a very willing savior, but he's someone who's very reluctant to forgive us after salvation. As somehow he, he looks at us and says, really? You're still sinning? I've saved you. Come on, get together, put it together. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He is gentle. And as his children, when we don't live according to the gospel, as we come to him, as we confess our sins, he is always willing to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. So rest in him for that. We can so often feel that he's going to be upset with us, but he is not. He is gentle with us as his children. And when we don't live according to the gospel, there is so much grace that flows from him to us. This is a great reminder from God's word. A great reminder of what we need to live our life, but not live our life under our own power, but to see that God, the gospel has transformed us. And through the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we have the ability to live our lives to a more and more, more, and more Christ-likeness for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are kind to save us. You demonstrate incredible mercy in our lives. Lord, without you, we would still be lost. Lord, we thank you for your grace. But your grace doesn't just stop at our salvation. Your grace extends beyond that into our life until you return. Lord, we need your grace on a daily basis. Lord, we know who you are. We thank you for, we, that we have your word. But may our life through the Spirit's convicting power, through his changing of our lives, and through the help of other believers, 
in our church allow each of our lives to demonstrate this type of godliness that Paul talks about. Lord, without your word, without your spirit, without your grace, we would be lost. But we thank you that you give us your grace to live each day for your glory. In Christ's name I pray.